Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. And I don't want to keep you because I know you have a pressing engagement with a fella across the street from me who wants you to go and look at his balcony. Yes, indeed. <laughs> what happened there? Well, I don't know. I struck up conversation with him. We he popped was... into a cafe across the road and Ed, Ed was sli- lagging slightly behind and all of a sudden heard him shout, nice balcony. And I thought that is some quality small talk. It's true. Anyway, then they, then they came down to your um, Bijou Cafe and said to me, uh, you know, could you come up and have a look at our balcony? <laughs> So what, are you going to go and declare it officially open? Oh, uh, yeah, the... I'm going to, with sort of looking at a sponsorship arrangement with the balcony, actually. How is, um, before we get into reasons to, to be cheerful and uh, what's coming up, uh, your week been well? We saw each other the other day. We had fun. We went for a walk in the park again. We did. Uh, arm in arm. Yeah. We we did a, we, there were some unsuspecting people who we had a photo with from Cornwall, didn't we? Uh, Ed hears some moment. people giggling behind him because yeah. they've, they've spotted him. And you say, hi. Well, maybe they were just giggling and you I make just sort of well, went up to them and said, you know, perhaps you'd like a photo. Well, this is it. A lot of famous people moan about uh, people asking them for photos. Ed asked them if they would like a selfie. Before, and they were kind of... Yeah, yeah, it's partly, it's partly, you know, if I'm honest about it, to, to make a quasi-serious point, it's partly when people are sort of nudging each other about the fact that it's me, I sort of, in a way, prefer to talk to them. Mm. You know, do, do, do you know what I mean? It's sort of slightly, but it feels slightly like you're in a kind of weird middle distance sort of situation, you know. Well, I, I thought you handled it very well. I think I did see one of them deleting it straight after. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> there was a slight, let's just be sort of full disclosure, there was a slightly awkward moment where it wasn't quite clear whether you were going to be in the picture <laughs> or not in the picture. Sort of, so sort not of, only and, did Ed kind of force I mean, the idea Alex, of having a selfie on them, then, then I ended up in it. And they're thinking, who is this hairy well, man? I think Alex, who works for me, said, oh, you know, perhaps you'd like Jeff in the picture. And then it was sort of all slightly like... <laughs> Not really. Know, it was kind of... But then I, I I sort of think I kind of... 
I kind of include, you know, I kind of included you. I sort of encased you in a warm sort of you glow clasped, of selfie. You clasped me to your comely bosom. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Should we talk about what's coming up? We're talking uh, culture this week. We're talking about culture. This, uh, as we speak, uh, we, we're, we're recording on the day when the new city of culture for 2021 is going to be announced. Um, that's not the European city of culture, which we've been excluded from because of the whole Brexit business. It's the UK city of culture. This was actually an initiative that Andy Burnham took when Labour was in government. And, it, you know, this year it's Hull. And we're going to be talking to somebody from Hull about the effects that they've had this year uh, from being the city of culture. We're going to be uh, talking to uh, Dave O'Brien from the University of Edinburgh, who studies these issues. And then we're going to be talking also to the brilliant, amazing cultural icon, Grayson Perry. I, I love him. He's great. That's so exciting. And that's very exciting. And as well as that, we have comedian Helen Monks coming on to pitch her ideas of things which could be reasons to be cheerful. If you remember, Catelyn Moran had the sitcom based on her own life, Raised by Wolves, and Helen, in effect, played Catelyn in it. So that's all coming up later. Should we do reasons to be cheerful? Yeah, what's yours? My reason to be cheerful is yesterday... I got... All your troubles seem so far away. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, there is a link, actually. Yeah. I do a show for American Radio about the Beatles, and I will interview different people about their favourite Beatles Can people songs. listen to it online? Presumably they can. Yeah, I think they need to subscribe. Oh, right. Yeah, it's on Sirius okay. XM in the States. OK. Um, but I got to interview a national treasure about the Beatles yesterday. And what's more, I got to go to his house and do it, and it was none other than former Python... Michael Palin. How fantastic. It was just great. And, you know, um, there are certain people who you just won't say a bad word about, uh, David Attenborough. I mean, I know you will because you have problems with the Blue Planet podcast. No, they've beating gone out down. And, they've gone down. Oh, so you're charge. fine with Attenborough again. Yeah, yeah, Your beef yeah, with yeah. Attenborough is yeah, over. Yeah. But Michael Palin, I think, is very much in that category. And part of me was a little apprehensive thinking, oh, my God, what, what if it's just all an act for the cameras? And he could not have been nicer. He was so wonderful. Went round his, uh, his beautiful house, made his, made his cup of tea and told fantastic stories stories about George Harrison. He said George Harrison was a great one for giving him gifts. So one time they'd been out for a boozy meal at a pub and at the end of the meal, George Harrison gave him one of his Oscars. Like the Beatles won an Oscar for I don't know, Hard Day's Night or whatever it would have been. And um, he just gifted Michael Palin his Oscar. And then some other time they were round at George's Did house. Did you get the hint that that if you've got more than one award... <laughs> It's good to give the award away to someone who recently didn't win an award. I've told you. I got my certificate for okay. coming second. That, I'll get, that the, arrived I'll get the Dymo label maker and I will put your name on one of the awards. How does that excellent, sound? Excellent, excellent. I mean, I had a, went through such a business with Michael Palin to arrange that with him. That he would like say to <laughs> you this story about the Oscar. He'll say, he was going to say, did he say you do this podcast with Ed? Blah, de blah. He was you going, know? He was and then very anyway, subtle. Anyway, George Harrison gave me this Oscar. He was trying to show, yeah. not tell. What's, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? So my reason to be cheerful relates to our subject uh, for today. My son, I'm, a, I'm going to be shortly hot-footing it to go and uh, see my son Sam in the school production of The Tempest. Now, Sam is only seven, so I think it's pretty amazing that uh, they're doing The Tempest. That is incredible. I know. Yeah. I mean, I don't quite know what to expect, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Are you a stern critic? No, <laughs> definitely not. In so fact, you're not he had a pushy a, stage father. I'm just sort of happy, happy middle way. I, in fact, he had a concert at the weekend where he was playing the ukulele. They were playing Jingle Bells. Oh, maybe you could teach him the ukulele. I can't play it. I've got a couple oh, of them, but I don't know right. what to do with them. Um, and so that was good. 
Uh, they they played Jingle Bells and they did it nicely. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're we're looking forward to the Tempest. And what is he in the Tempest? I think he's a narrator. Okay, that's that's quite a serious thing to be doing. That's a, that's a good good thing to be doing, yeah. right? Yeah, I well, think you... there's lots of narrators, but I oh, think... less well, so then. No, but less I think impressive. It's fine. I think it's uh, fine. He, no, didn't, sure. he didn't seem to have any sort of impending stage fright when I talked to him about it this morning. Were you in school plays and stuff? I was in school plays in primary school. I always felt a bit discriminated against because when I went to secondary school, it was all people who could sing. They were <laughs> musicals. And I just thought I can't sing. Mm. So I kind of never... It sort of slightly rankles with me, actually. I, uh, I sort of slightly regret not doing it because I really enjoyed doing the school plays when I was in primary school. Well, maybe so I, we, I know we've mentioned Panto before on the podcast. Well, you think I might have a new career in Amdram? I don't rule it out. Um, I was going to tell you about a school play I was in. Now, this was oh, in yeah, the uh, this was in the mid eighties. So, bearing in mind I went to a comprehensive school and it was during the Thatcher years. Uh, I don't remember a thing, anything about this play, but somebody put the program up on um, on Facebook, so I can see that I played a character called Sogat. Wow, which was a trade union. Funny you should say that because the main character is King Codian of TUC. Uh, there's a Princess Equity, a Prince Aslef, and a Baron Nalgo. So Honestly, that think the sounds teachers... like my kind of play. <laughs> do you think the teachers were trying to make yes. any political points at all? No, it sounds this? entirely sort of non-political and impartial. That is extraordinary. <laughs> I think I think there is one other sort of non-thespian well it is thespian reason to be cheerful for this week which is a, I sort of feel that the sort of whole podcast should have ownership of this mm-hmm. and this is the incredible success of your wife Sarah with her comedy routine from some years ago which got posted and then went viral this week yeah she's had half a million hits Amazing. which is, is more than more yeah. than we've had yeah. this week so um yeah she's uh she's... it's about the joint custody that she has with your ex-wife of your dog, yeah, ex girlfriend. She's, she's I'm very, sorry. very clear to make the distinction. Yeah, no. yes, but, but it uh, is very funny. She's very funny. She is very, very talented. Yeah, so we can put put a link up to that on the uh, Facebook page too. We can definitely. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. All right, and we're thrilled to be joined by. National national treasure, I think. That's my official status now. Yes, but that's that's a fast track. I mean, national treasure often takes decades, and you've done it in far less than that. So you're a high achiever. I was a late starter. Uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't really get going until I was well into my forties, and I'm now fifty seven. So it's Grace and Perry. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, so we're talking about, and Kevin is here. Oh, Kevin the cat. Kevin the cat is here. We should perhaps tell this story because Kevin made front page news in London. Um, yesterday, and Ed, you, you were embroiled in this story. Well, I was talking to Grayson about this podcast, and uh, Grayson said that I said, "Well, I gather you've lost your cat," and he said, "Yeah, I mentioned it to the Evening Standard." I said, "You're on the front page of the Evening Standard," <laughs> and I took some time to convince him that he was actually on the front page of the Evening Standard, uh, owing to the fact that there were one or two other things going on at the moment, like sort of Brexit disaster and so on. I think Grayson might have thought it was sort of unlikely that you'd be on the front page. I also had a vision of sort of Evgeny Lebedev sending kind of special agents out searching for it so he could get the follow-up story, you know, (laughs) with George Osborne in tow. That is true. (laughs) But but Kevin is unscathed. Uh, He's got a bit of a broken tail, I think, because he's stuck on the roof next door for three days. So, uh, yeah, I think he's definitely affected by it. He's mooching about. But that's a reason to be cheerful. Definitely. The return of Kevin. Well, cats do power the internet. 
Yeah, I love I I love nice pictures of cats, and Kevin is a particularly nice cat, if I may say so. He does all the cat things good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're, we're here to talk about um, the effects of culture on regeneration, and I wanted to start by thinking about when when you were growing up in Chelmsford, were you aware of a local culture? Ooh, golly, no, not really. I don't think I really went into a museum until um, I was about six or seven and I went to the British Museum with my mother. So that was coming up to London to see that? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't aware of a local culture. And she decided to take you, did she? She, she... Yeah, I think it it was a sort of um, compensation package after my parents got divorced, I think, and we were all in it. So I can remember, like, my auntie coming and it was a big day out in London. We went to the British Museum. And what did it have an immediate effect on you? disappointment I think I remember I was in the lift and uh, the, the lift man they had a lift attendant in those days and he said where would you like to go and he said what would you what do you like and I said oh I like models and he said oh they've got some models in the Egyptian department so we went into the Egyptian department and there's like these quite rough model ships I, I was dead disappointed in really? it. yeah <laughs> but you recovered. I got my revenge yeah he said I've got a trustees meeting this afternoon <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're improving their model <laughs> for other six and seven year olds. So, do you think if people grow up in somewhere like London, where cultures all around them, they're at an immediate advantage because of that? Um, I suppose it does seep into you, though. I think London is full of people who are proud to live in a city of full of theatres they don't go to. Right. Yeah. You know. Why is he looking at me when he says that? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I think it, it adds a, a, a luster to a place if it's got a strong cultural reputation, even if the people who are proud of it don't go to it. Um, but, you know, culture what operates in an interesting way, I think. Uh, it's because it's it's more subtle. It puts over more ambiguous messages. It, it delivers uh, messages in a way that, you know, giving speeches and the traditional media can't do because it's a sort of a whole body experience very often, you know. Um, we are human beings and, you know, music and dance and drama and visual art, all these things are speaking to different parts of us that, you know, the normal political messages we hear, they're not delivered in the same way. You know, we, we, what great, what's great about culture, it goes under the radar. You know, it, it's soft power. And so... You know, often when we talk about the sort of instrumentalization of culture, it seems to me that it's it's that's one aspect of it that isn't sort of talked about much. It's it's the fact that in this age when truth and facts, you know, there are there is a difference between truth and facts. Facts are a bit you know dull. They're like two and two equals four. Whereas truth, truth is something that people get some people emotionally engaged in it. it. Has a sort of revelatory aspect to it. And culture is a really good way of delivering that sort of with narratives, gets people engaged. And so I think that, um, you know, when we talk about the, the use of culture. In, I'm in sorry life, to interrupt you, Grace, but Kevin has come and sat on my lap. In I, a, I must I admit And I honestly, I am now falling in love with Kevin. I'm you look like a James Bond were, buddy, were, the way you're stroking him. You were, uh, <laughs> I mean, there you were making a really... <laughs> there you were making a really kind of um kind of profound point about uh, truth i honestly <laughs> i've actually come to kidnap kevin <laughs> this is basically all the ruse <laughs> hey, well you know he's trained he's, he's media trained i'll tell you that exactly sorry 
Carry on. <laughs> true, 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 yeah, true. that's my life's work. You know, it's all been eclipsed by the bloody cat. You know, <laughs> you know trying to widen participation in serious culture. Don't mind. Let's just put a picture what, of a fucking cat on the front page. What, what, was, what, what was your um, What was your first? And this is probably a, a strange question. But what was your first cultural experience? What was that? you had the British Museum, but it was disappointing. Uh, what was the first experience of where, where the light really came on for you? You see, I come from an era, I think, you know, I'm 57. I come from an era where, for me, a lot of the people that went to art school, it was about the doing of it. And so the cultural experience was in the doing. You know, I enjoyed drawing, I enjoyed painting and making things. And that's what led me, you know, to be to enjoy the art lessons and then go to art school. I never went really to a contemporary art exhibition until I was you know, well into my teens, probably 16 or 17. And it wasn't like, oh, I want to be one of them. It was, I like doing this that I'm doing and I'm, yes. and I'm going to just continue doing it. And so there wasn't this idea that I was, you know, communicating to an audience. It was very much, I'm an insular kind of like, I could have got on with it in my bedroom, like some outsider artist and just carried on happily, I suppose. The idea that I was joining a a field of culture that had a traditions and, an audience was alien to me until re- until I went to art school. What was the first thing that you did? What was the, when you said you were doing stuff? What was it? Well, I started with just drawing on yeah. scraps of paper and little books, yeah. like all kids do, you know. And then um, I really, really enjoyed the art lessons at school when I used to do extra art lessons. And then my art teacher just said, "I think you'll do really well at art school" because he could see my unconscious sort of bleeding out onto the page. Right, and then. Um, you know, I, I, went, I went to art school and that's when you get the shock of, oh, my God, you know, the art is just suddenly explodes, the idea about what art could be. And then, um, you know, I started going to galleries and yeah. then you know, it, then I came to London after art college and you, you you sort of just join in with youth culture and what's going on, you know. And I think what, why, why culture is important in, in, you know, in a good way is that you don't have to think, I am now doing culture. Yeah. It, it happens to you, you yeah. know, and it, whether it's fo- it's it's the sort of village dance or whether it's going to the grandest theatre or gallery, it, it's something that seeps in. Watching the telly, people never talk about television. This really annoys me as someone who makes television. They never talk about television as culture. And I it's think it's... looked down upon. Yeah, when people go on pointless, you know, yeah. and they say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a politician. What do you do in your spare time, Ed? Oh, I sit in front of a telly. Yeah. Nobody says that. Yeah. And yeah. yet that's what they do, yeah. you know. And I think, you know... Some of the most profound and educating and moving things that I see on a daily, weekly basis are on, on the television. And it's a great, and it's especially in this country, a lot of the time, what what the, the power of culture, you know, people put this sort of capital letters on it as you know, going to the opera or going to Tate Modern or something. And yet, you know, there's lots of things. I mean, the internet is full of culture. You know, the, 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 the number of people now that, you know, are very funny or witty or observant and clever on social media. I do agree with that. And, you know, the amount of inventiveness, you know, that they can, they write these sort of hilarious haiku in 140 characters, now, unfortunately, 280 characters, you know. Um, and I think it's, it's a joy. You know, I'm constantly... You mean like Donald Trump, basically? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not him. No. Um, now... How should we think about this issue of sort of regeneration culture, or maybe more widely, what can what can culture do for a, a place? I think 
you know, culture is what makes anywhere worth living for. You know, that it's 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 the bits you do when you're not kind of getting on with the utilities of life in a way. Yes. And um I think that the 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 power of culture because everybody, you know, is looking around in the cultural landscape for things that validate their experience. If you see what I mean. So the other day I was on the stage and uh, doing a lecture and I, I happened to know that um, it was the 40th anniversary of the broadcast of Abigail's Party, right? Yeah. One of my favourite plays. And I just mentioned this to the audience and they, and they just burst into a round of applause for, the, for, for this anniversary. And I thought, that's because, you know, they, they, they're my age and, they, and it kind of resonates with them, you know, because it, 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 they saw their culture validated in that moment, you know. And I think that everyone is doing that all the time. They're looking to, for their very ambiguous sort of churning in, interior uh, uh, experience to be reflected in culture. However that is, you know, whether that's a rap song or whether that's a sort of uh, political play or whatever. And I think that that make, makes them feel part of the, you know, the society they're in. There's something interesting in what you're saying, though, in that we're talking about culture and place. And the big two things that you've mentioned are television and the Internet, which are completely removed from the local do you think people are becoming more removed from local culture? Well, I think the nature of you know the media now being global is that it can operate like a kind of blender, you know, in that now if you sort of wear a different T-shirt in kind of Stoke-on-Trent, the next minute someone in the Philippines is sort of mass-producing it. I don't know. And um, I don't know. It has a good and bad effect, but I think but you can't ignore electronic media and the way that it has the reach it has and of course people now are used to seeing the best who's going to go down the pub and listen to some slightly shonky folk band when they can just turn on their phone put on their earbuds and hear the best music in the world their absolute favorite and you know if you think about the sort of last 20 30 years i would say as somebody who's a relative ignoramus about these things we have seen, you know, it's been a great time for culture in this country. And it's also been a time when from the Angel of the North to the ideas of City of Culture, we have seen culture outside London really, certainly in some places, thrive. Is yeah, that, I is mean, that, is some, that right? Yeah, you get, say, say, like the, you know, the gallery in Margate, you know, exactly. the Turner Gallery exactly. in Margate and the, the Hepworth in exactly. Wake, Wakefield and pieces. There's also been a few white elephants as well, you know, yeah. because I think there was a, a big infuse, enthusiasm of spending lottery money on galleries, hoping that, you know, that would this would have this instant effect yeah. on the house prices. I li- I remember literally hearing Nick's wrote to make a speech quite a few years ago now. Now the chairman of the Arts Council, formerly director of the Tate, yeah. Yes, saying crime was, has dropped, you know, since this gallery opened or something. And I actually did a pot called This this Pot um, Cuts Crime by 29%, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, I'm, yeah, so I, I can remember feeling quite um, sceptical of that kind of, um, march of the cultural tanks across the, the lawns right. of England. Sometimes it's taken off. I think a big problem is that often they set these things up and then they forget they've got to have exhibitions and artists in them, you know, and there's only so many. So it's a building without uh, yeah. content. 
or yeah. not enough content. They've got to have a program. Yeah. You know, and when you've got a dynamic, uh, well-informed, uh, you know, curator or director yeah. of these places, then they work. And it's, and that's, that's, that's where they live or die by, I think. Is there a sort of good way of doing it and a bad way of doing it? I mean, in other words, are there places where you think, well, they've, they've understood the role that culture can play in a place. They've encouraged it, nurtured it. It's helped the area, but it's not been a sort of, you know, the planet culture's arrived. I mean, it's a place you might, because you've gone around the country, done a lot, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's when... Like Margate, the, for example. Yeah, or, but, yeah, Margate is interesting because I think that, you know, it, that part of Kent it was very, it's very run, or has been very run down. It's starting to get gentrified now because it's sort of like easy commuting distance of London. Um, but I think there was kind of uh, a negative reaction to the turn in contemporary, right. you know, because it sort of plonked there on the thing, right. and, and I think that it was seen as uh, the sort of an attempt of sort of to sort of brazenly attract middle class house buyers to the area right. and you know and the hipstification of the sort of an area yeah. around the yeah. around the art gallery um but in the end you know these things take a while i think that people think it's going to happen instantly but the social change happens at a much slower pace you know you've got to let it bleed and say oh yes it's quite nice there you know and, now, I went to South End recently, you know, a place I used to go as a kid, and it was starting to, oh, it's quite nice. It's quite nice along here now. And I remember it being rough. And is culture been a part of that? Well, it has got, I mean, there's, there's two uh, contemporary art galleries in um, Essex, and one of them is in uh, South End. I'm not crediting it. Sure, sure. But but, this, but the whole idea of cities of culture, we're, we're, we're talking as the, um, as the 2021 City of Culture for the UK is about to be announced. That idea has been a good thing. Do you think? Yeah, I know. I mean, I think and it, how it, you know, yeah, I went to Hull and everybody was, you know, very, very happy with it and the, and the, the, the feeling. And I think I think it's nine out of ten people who live in Hull have been to some event or something yeah. in yeah. the culture. And it puts the place on the map. And I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm so doubtful about it to sort of what's the what, what are they after? You know, are they after higher house prices? Are they after um, attracting investment? You know, because nowadays there's an industry in place branding, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, a city that's on its uppers or wherever and all yeah. over around the world, there's specialist consultants who will come in there and they're almost like very diligent tourists and they'll look at see how the people dress and what the graffiti says and what the local museum has got in it. And they'll sort of like try to give it a cultural identity, you know. Yeah. Sort of. And... Um, and I suppose they're trying to sell it to investors and potential residents and tourists. But you sort of wonder how much, in the end, you know, all these places that often in Britain are the casualties of industrial decline. Is there ever going to be enough sort of energy of a different sort that's going to regenerate them? You know, what, what, what are these cities for now? I sort of ask sometimes. How do you how do you communicate to people in existing communities that this is for you too? It's not just to attract people into these areas. Because growing up, I, I would just have an innate sense of oh, those things aren't for people like us. I think the media is you know important in that you know I, I've seen you know my personal experience is that um, doing television you know has had a huge knock on effect on my art gallery visitor figures and it's and it's and it's making people feel like they understand what's going on and know it and 
You've got to taken you to new audiences. Actually. Yeah, but I've also, you know, I've also communicated what I'm about. Yes. In a way. Yes. That is interesting without being patronising. Yes. And I'm often dealing with quite subtle, sophisticated, philosophical ideas, you know, around gender and identity and class. And yet I'm putting it over in an entertaining, engaging way. And I think that often, you know, a lot of cultural, uh, the high-end culture is is sort of like um, they're people talking to themselves. You know, they're talking to other people who have as a rarefied taste of culture as they do. And I think that one thing you can't do if you're kind of trying to talk to a large audience is sort of fake it in a way. It's almost like you have to be of the audience yourself. You know, I am just myself when I'm doing my thing. And it, I'm lucky in that I have a kind of demotic, broad appeal. You know, I haven't, I always say to my audience, I share your taste, you know, and it's not like I've reached down, I've just reached across. Yeah. Whereas I think if you're someone who only likes constructivist, constructivist opera, then yeah, talk to those people, but they're going to be yeah. limited. You know, the artists often I find that I love are the comedians, you know, because they are incredibly instinctual and they speak to a broad audience. Yeah, I think we've really got to get this idea about what is culture is, is, is this sort of difficult thing that um, you have to learn about. You know, that actually you start too much with, eat your spinach, in other words. You yeah, you start with people saying, no, you know, chips are culture too, and get them to sort of think about it. And people are more, I think once you've got, got them on your side, you know, they're much more. I mean, I get all sorts of interesting people um, who meet me in the street and say, oh, I really like what you do. And I'm really shocked. I mean, the other day I was on my push bike. I stopped at the sort of temporary traffic lights and the guy who was digging the road sort of popped out of the hole and said, shouldn't you be in a dress? Like, oh, <laughs> and I thought, yes, but you know, I've got, I'm broad. I've got a broad audience here. You know, you, you, there's this thing you said about um, uh, culture and regeneration, which I thought was very, very interesting. You said, if you think of artists, they're like the shock troops of gentrification. We march in with the first people to go. We like this old warehouse. Yeah, we need a cheap studio. And people start noticing, you know, maybe some designers open up a little boutique and suddenly before you know it, the dead hand of the developer is noticing it. And before you know it, the designers move in and that's it. Bang goes the area. Yeah, that's totally. And I've seen it happen, you know, all over London places. They become cultural deserts. They become sort of investment property opportunities for very wealthy people. And that's the crux of the dilemma, isn't it? How do you have, you know, how can culture... You know, we, we, because cultural revival of air, of areas, and I'm not saying the culture isn't there, but it might be more latent. Bringing it out, giving it voice, giving it space is really important. Um, bringing people in from elsewhere is not a bad thing. I mean, people visiting and so on, but not making it so it just pushes out. I think it's a difficult um, dance nowadays because because of the nature of uh, the internet. The minute something becomes noted as a thing, everything has to become a thing now. You know, yeah. is. and so the minute a cafe is like, wow, there's a really good cafe there. You've got a queue of Japanese tourists outside of it who yeah. looked it up on TripAdvisor or whatever. Yeah, and it sort of killed it as a thing in a way. And it's because if you think about, you know, a lot of the culture, say, of around uh, popular music in in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, it it was quite a slow burn. You know, mods, for instance, started in the late 40s, 
but didn't really kind of hit the headlines until the 60s. So everything is instantaneous now. But now, yeah, exactly. It would, be, it, would, it would happen in a matter of days rather than a matter of years. And so I think that we've got... A, it, it, there's this feeling that it's all much more self-conscious now. It's, oh, let's do some culture, and how are we going to pitch this to make it look authentic? You know, because the, the, if you can fake authenticity now, you know, you're onto a winner yeah. because that kind of tone is what people are all searching for, which, which goes back to that idea of, you know, a, um, a sort of blurry shot on your phone will get more clicks than a, a, a sort of highly focused professional shot. People want the grit. You know, that's why the idea of the underground, they have some ownership over it, I think is an important thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kevin's now attacking Ed. Uh, He's turned on you. Uh, sorry, um, He's a floating voter. Exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, he's uh, a Tory. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the 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 title of this podcast is "Reasons to Be Cheerful," and there's obviously lots of reasons to feel pessimistic about the country at the moment. But do you feel cheerful about the cultural life of the country? Yeah, no, I do, and, and I, I think that. Um, as a whole, you know, if you kind of got a bunch of, you know, 10,000 people in the cultural industry in a room and asked them which, which way they voted, you know, they're a progressive bunch. They're a progressive yeah. liberal bunch, yeah. which, of course, is great. But I think the, the, the downside of that, and often when I'm sat at a dinner next to a curator, I say, well, when's your next Tory show you're going to put on? You know, and I say, you know, you're, all these galleries, they're always making big play about diversity. You know, we're going to we're going to show this group and this group and this group in our gallery, which is great. I say, but yeah, but when do you represent the Tories? When do you represent kind of plonking Daily Mail, Middle Britain? You know, they don't. And so and I, the Paul I give Dacre it a, exhibition, you think we should have the Paul Dacre exhibition? Don't well, those people just want to see oil paintings of ships and horses? Well, maybe and... they do. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe why shouldn't they put on exhibitions of ships and horses in the gallery instead of like difficult stuff about social issues? You know, because, you know, I'm, I'm uh, the coordinator, the kind of the, the head honch on the Royal Academy summer show next year. And. You know, the great thing about that, I'm making a big play about it's democracy. You know, it's about that we, we it is a show where you're going to see the big names of contemporary art next to Joe Bloggs, who's sort of done a watercolour of Dartmoor, you know, and I think that's fantastic. And I think that, you know, as Brexit showed us the referendum, the liberal progressive bubble you know, have gone from that, you know, I often think that they all sort of walk along thinking they're still on the older master march with a, you know, college scarf and they're sticking it to the man. And of course, what they've found out post-Brexit is they are the man, you know. And I think that uh, it's been a bit of a shock to the progressive liberal uh, metropolitan bubble that you know, there is a big chunk of the country out there, the people perhaps that need to, you know, have, be represented culturally, who see us as the problem. And do you think the six or seven year old of today, compared to Grayson Perry when when you were six or seven, there's more cultural opportunity for that six or seven year old today? Would you say? Um, if they're prepared to search it out, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like, easier to search it out now. Yes, yeah, what I mean like, because you know you just pick up your phone and and you can Google something and find it out, and and it's it's feeling culturally entitled that that's your thing to do. You know, I'm imagining that a lot of kids in sort of deprived parts of the country they don't even have a dining table to sit around let alone sit around talking about culture because it's it's led from your you know home environment probably in that you know if you're talking 
you know, around the, the, the dining table about it, then you pick up that habit and that way of thinking and engaging. Whereas, you know, when I did a program with a group of sort of disenfranchised young men in Skelmersdale, you know, some of them hadn't ever been to Liverpool, which mm. was 20 miles mm. away. You know, and I was sort of amazed at it. They, but they, they just didn't have that, that. That was not on their horizon, literally. So it, 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 to engage with culture, you need to kind of learn to engage with culture in a way and know that it's there. I mean, I think I put my daughter off going to art galleries because I dragged her to so many, you know. and it's taken My mum dragged me to quite a lot, I'm afraid. Yeah, but I think, you know, now she's older, she's come back to it. But the cultural industry needs to sort of think about how it, not necessarily what it's saying, but how it says it, the tone of it, where it says it, and to get the reach to as wide an audience as possible, you know, because, um, and for them to feel included in it. Grayson Perry, cultural icon, <laughs> o- owner of Kevin, <laughs> for which you're even more famous today. <laughs> Thanks so much. So to get a perspective on what becoming a city of culture can do for a place, we're now joined by Sharon Darley from the Goodwin Trust uh, in Hull. And of course, Hull is the uh, UK city of culture this year. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Hi. Tell us, first of all, what's been the impact of Hull becoming the city of culture in 2017? At the risk of sounding uh, repetitive, I think I'm going to repeat what a lot of people are saying at the minute, that it's been absolutely amazing Tell us a little bit about what the impact has meant in practice. How would you describe it as you go around Hull and do and do your work with the Goodwin Trust, which which is a, a charity that actually helps local people and works in partnership with the community? It has had impact across the city, I will say, I think. I think the Hull 2017 team have worked hard to, to get out of the city centre. Um, I work on an estate pretty close to the city centre, actually. We would be classed as an inner city estate. However, we're still quite isolated. One of the projects we did for the City of Culture, the I Wish to Communicate With You project, was based on that very theme, that isolation, that, hi, here we are, we're okay, we want to talk to people, come and see us. It was that sort of communication, so I don't think... Uh, it matters whether you're right next to a city centre or on the edge of a city, you can feel isolated. And I think they worked hard to get into those um, communities because the city's made up of micro-communities. If you're one of the people on that estate, how might you have experienced the city of culture through the projects that the Goodwin Trust has been organising? Goodwin runs its own arts programme called Estate of the Nation. Well, we feel it's quite innovative because we've been embedding artists into our community for quite a few years now. And we've had some really good results. It's been a joy, actually. And we've done lots of other things. We have our own theatre company called Middle Child, who are doing really well now. We already were doing lots of work. And so when City Culture came, it gave us opportunity to put in a couple of bids for a couple of ideas that we really wanted to do and we really felt would make a difference. Um, The first one was I Wish to Communicate with You. Uh, one of the artists that, that came and lived on the estate for a year was Silvio Palladino, 
And while he was there, he did uh, some work on this this idea as a concept of putting coloured lights into um, existing lighting in communal areas in blocks of council housing. We'd done the consultation and I'd seen the looks on people's faces. It was such a beautiful idea, um, using coloured filters in existing lights. We've ended up lighting up ten blocks now. Fantastic. It, it, it includes about a th- over a thousand people, roughly. Fantastic. And what was so, your other, and what was your other project? The other project was Terrace Enders, which was we worked with the One Show, the BBC One Show, and we put a mural up of Lillian Balocca on the estate. It was all last minute and wonderful. Uh, and you put, who was the mural of? Sorry, Lillian Balocca. Lily changed the whole health and safety rules uh, back in the 60s oh, for right. fishermen. Oh, right. Fantastic. So she's a, a local hero and it was done in the traditional uh, Gable End way. And we did that. It was wonderful and very successful. And then so we put in another bid called Terrace Enders to do two more murals on the heart of the fishing industry. You know, which is a big part of Hull's heritage and memory. Definitely. and So we did that, and that had quite a big impact on quite a lot of people. And then we held a traditional block party. The local people got on stage and performed, local kids, very multicultural, loads of positive stuff. It's just opened up all sorts of communication on all sorts of levels, I would say. And as a resident of Hull, more generally... Would you say the, the 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 city feels different as a result of this? Yeah, I do. Uh, like, so you're preaching to the converted. I am one of the engaged. Arts and culture changed my life in loads of different ways. I went to art college and I always knew that arts and culture makes a difference to people's life. My job title at Goodwin is quality of life. That's yeah. my job title. Yeah. And I know, because I've seen it over and over again in all sorts of circumstances, that contact and, 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 and to be emerged in any form of arts and culture, and I'm not a snob, I think sitting down and watching EastEnders or Corrie is a form of engaging with culture. Everything, you know, we're engaged with culture all the time. I think it improves quality of life. I think it improves people's perceptions of where they are and it's done that here i think it's done that here the atmosphere in the city is so much more positive you can feel it and it's brilliant and and when it comes to january the 1st 2018 when the city of culture finishes yeah big question what happens next the big l the big legacy i am confident as hull 2017 team have said that they were working on legacy uh, uh, you know before day one nothing can be like this year i think everyone knew that this year was special you can't sustain it at this high level it's been intense this year in many ways this has like been like a springboard this year for uh, what's going to come next we've got to continue with all the all the connections that have been made this year so Hull 2017 had a fund called CCP that gave money to 60 uh, organizations and groups and uh, across the city uh, to do uh, creative activities this year there's all that to build on. There's the volunteers that are all still here, still wanting to do stuff. 
So there's lots of things to build on. The businesses are saying that they do that they've done really well this year. There's a lot to build on. So to to finish on, you you think that our listeners should feel cheerful about uh, the whole idea of a city of culture. Reasons to be cheerful are definitely, I think every single city should be city of culture at some point. I don't think it should be a competition. I think I think everybody should have a go at it because it has had a positive impact on this part of the world. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about the experience of Hull City of Culture. Thank you. My pleasure. Listening to all that is Dr Dave O'Brien from the University of Edinburgh. He thinks a lot about cultural issues, cultural regeneration, inequality. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Tell us a little bit about what you think listening to Sharon. What, what was your reaction? I, I thought that was wonderful. And what was really great about it was how she was telling a story of cultural success. I suppose what was maybe missing um, or maybe on the edges of what she was talking about was economic uh, impact. So one of the really interesting things about Hull's year was when it was announced, um, the, I suppose, dominant story in the news was that jobs, uh, inward investments, et cetera, would come. Whereas Sharon's story was one of a kind of brilliant series of cultural uh, events, uh, cultural programmes, and I guess kind of changes to the physical infrastructure of her estate through culture as well. And that, I suppose, is the the big uh, tension that's come up with using culture for urban regeneration between the stories that say, look, if you do this, you'll get, you know, all these kind of different new jobs replacing maybe factory jobs that have gone or, or whatever, um, and the idea that actually if we're going to have a cultural festival, let's just do arts and cultural things. That in turn has its own issues. There are issues about kind of who attends arts and cultural events, who doesn't, who's engaged and who isn't. But yeah, one of the kind of, I suppose, things that need more work doing is around the economic impact and being more cautious about, say, jobs and investment. And what is the real story on the economic impact? Because one of the reasons we're featuring this on the podcast is because it's a great thing to celebrate. Um, I, th- I think it builds, obviously builds a great sense of community, a sense of civic pride. And I think those things are incredibly important uh, in themselves. And I think for me, it would justify it on its own. But what is the story on the economic impact? So... I mean, you're totally correct. Um, and it's it's almost a bit sad that we're not talking about, you know, civic pride being a great thing sure, to celebrate sure. just in of itself. We have a strange uh, story of economic impact, partially because of the success of two British cities. So Glasgow in 1990, which was a European capital of culture, um, and then Liverpool in 2008, which was, again, a European uh, capital of culture. The Liverpool story was of a massive success in terms of economic impact and large figures such as kind of £800 million uh, of economic impact are uh, are sort of in the public domain. Are they true? So they are broadly correct, yes, um, if you accept the assumptions of the models underpinning them. Sure, sure, Um, I won't get into that. Sure. The issue that myself and uh, my colleagues Peter Campbell and Samson Cox have, have had as we've kind of been working on uh, the story of Liverpool is that UK City of Culture has taken that and said, look, you know, if you put a pound in, you'll get eight pounds of economic impact back. And what we've been saying is that actually the Liverpool story is really specific because you have a story of a city that had this almost kind of unique cultural offer in terms of its museums, its musical heritage, its football clubs. And 
a comparatively low level of economic development to take advantage of that. So when I was growing up in the city, uh, the hotel offer was almost kind of non-existent. Um, but the yeah. Adelphi with the taps, which run brown water. I, I, I think that, that would be one example of what I'm talking about, yeah, as, you know, as an underdevelopment of uh, the service sector in the city. Um, and similarly, actually, like shopping was, was quite poor in the city when I was growing up. Um, and there are lots of kind of economic issues. One, this is one of the reasons that um, Merseyside as a whole was designated as a, a candidate for Objective 1 funding from the EU. So kind of around a billion pounds came into tranches um, in the period leading up to So there were other things going on is basically so, what you're saying. So many other things. And whilst, so, you know, in the next few days, we're going to hear what the next UK city of culture is going to be. And whilst those candidate cities have got these kind of incredible local cultures that are fantastic, the extent to which they've got, I guess, a kind of a really global tourist offer that, you know, just needs kind of hotels and businesses to be built around them is is, is maybe less so. Is there an issue here about the way we think about regeneration led by culture? Because maybe it's, we think about it as you build exciting things, people come from outside into an area and then it sort of lifts the area up. There was this um, uh, urbanist, I think Richard Florida, who said the best way to improve a decaying urban area was to open cool bars, creatives, techies, hipsters and all that. And I think he's some, since gone back on some of that. But it, it, that that feels like an uncomfortable way of thinking about it. It's what Grayson Perry was saying to us earlier. Is there a different way of thinking about it? Yeah, I think what's really important is from your starting point is don't take somebody else's model and say, if we do that here, we'll get exactly the same results. And then don't set up um, a cultural project that almost from the start is deliberately designed to not involve local people and indeed kind of displace them or get rid of them. Um, So yeah, as you've identified, one of the big stories around uh, urban regeneration through culture has been if we could just get a completely different population, then you know our tax base uh, tax base would be better, um, our streets would be cleaner, uh, we'd have like you know less urban problems, etc. But that's a, both a crazy and really offensive way to think about yeah. local communities and and local populations. So where have they done a good job of that, and how have they done it? Yeah, so so this is this is really interesting. Um, Derry, Londonderry uh, was the first UK city of culture, and I think there's a lot to learn from there actually, because although that similar tension between kind of economic impact narratives and cultural stories was present. Actually, that was a place where the cultural uh, activities, particularly in terms of community building, were really important uh, for obvious, you know, kind of historical And they reasons. did it well, did they? I, I think so, yeah, um, particularly in terms of developing uh, cross-community relations. There were the kind of big moments of, say, you know, the Turner Prize being over there and, and stuff like that. Um, but it presents quite a different model, I think, to the idea of, yeah, just build a new building and suddenly, you know, techies will flood in and start paying tax. So, so is it like an either or situation? So if you go big on engaging local community, you get the first thing we talked about, which was the sense of civic pride and all the sort of cuddly benefits. And if you go the other way and you, you think about tourism, then you get the economic benefits. No, it, it shouldn't be. And part of the success, I think, of, of Liverpool was that they kind of did both at once. So there's something about the kind of, um, say, musical history of the city that, lo- you know, local people are just insanely proud of, even if they're a kind of, you know, 
issues around, say, closures of venues and, and stuff like this. But it's also something tourists are really, really interested in. So a good example from Liverpool is the Museum of Liverpool, which has been incredibly successful, um, both in terms of getting the wider Merseyside population, many of whom um, are not your kind of usual suspects for going to a museum, but also appealing to tourists as well, who are interested in, yeah, you know, football, music, broader kind of, you know, Scouse culture. I mean, I think there's the other sort of danger in this, which is that somehow, and I know you're not saying this, we sort of get into the idea of thinking, well, if you build cultural venues and so on, it's only going to be attractive to people from outside. When the opposite, you know, it's just totally untrue. So we've got the Cast Theatre in Doncaster. It was relatively new, four or five years. It's a, you know, it's partly about good public space, which is available to people, at, you know, good public space and good things happening in it, in an area. And I think, so, so then, I mean, it feels to me like there must be a sort of middle way here between the idea that it's sort of gentrification gone mad, displace existing communities, and the idea maybe that it's an alien thing coming from elsewhere. Um, but, but you know, good, this done well surely must be able to engage existing communities as well as outside communities, is, is really what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things I really liked about what Sharon was saying was this idea that, like, everybody does culture. And so I guess the question is, if you're going to have, you know, um, urban development, you know, kind of infrastructure building and stuff, how do you do that in a way that kind of says, what about, you know, appealing, maybe not to everybody because you can't please all of the people all of the time, but at least, you know, meeting people where their interests are rather than, I guess, when it's done badly, you've got, you know, the idea of if we put a theatre in and, you know, we just put on, say, what the National Theatre are doing down in London, somehow that'll speak to the everyday life of, you know, people in Birmingham, which, you know, like there are different cultures across the country, different cultural practices, different, you know, kind of sets of interests. And they're what needs to be kind of foregrounded, even within these kind of maybe expensive infrastructure projects that need, you know, sponsors and central government and, and this kind of thing to help. You're saying there's got to be a connection to place. It yeah. can't just be something that's dropped in there. Yeah. I mean, that that's so, so crucial, um, particularly in, in terms of when the aims of a project are really explicit to transform a place, there is this question about, well, transforming for who, in what way, what's the kind of the end state and how are you kind of bringing people who are often not just kind of culturally disengaged, but have, you know, these broader issues around unemployment, education, et cetera. How are you bringing them to be central to making decisions rather than kind of imposing decisions upon them? I mean, I suppose part of this, to state the obvious, but it probably is worth stating is, you can't use culture to try and answer all of the deep-seated problems or challenges, economic challenges of inequality and so on that an area has. And if you try and load it all onto the cultural offer or the cultural undertaking, then you're not going to succeed. No, absolutely not. And it's sort of, it's a bit unfair um, to, I guess, kind of expect organisations who are brilliant at certain things like producing Shakespeare plays um, to, you know, create thousands of new jobs or, you know, transform years of issues in the education system and stuff like this. So also, I guess, kind of, you know, tempering expectations is quite uh, quite important. But but also just at a fundamental level of equality, why should it be only people who live in London who have, you know, at their fingertips these great cultural offers? I mean, I think that's, for me, that's the sort of basic start, sort of baseline you know, which is why I think I support this. It's got to be done the right way. It's got to be done engaging the local community, but it shouldn't, you know, it's partly just a choice question. 
isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, we know um, the English cultural system is deeply unequal, um, both in terms of funding, which, you know, gets kind of funneled through London because of the national institutions, but also um, kind of specific bits of funding. So the tension between who, by and large, is playing the lottery, for example, and who is benefiting from the arts organisations. There's a real big disconnect between, say, the northeast of England, um, which has, you know, some very rich cultural uh, institutional offerings in, say, Newcastle, but, you know, it's quite rural, it's quite dispersed, and then where where the money is in London. On top of that, I think there's also a question about um, who is making culture. So we know um, London is crucial to cultural production in this country, and because of various reasons, but, you know, primarily things like the housing crisis, what we're finding is that um, in some research, myself and colleagues from the LSA are doing that people actually making culture tend to be from quite narrow social starting points, professional managerial background. Um, you know, they tend to have come through particular educational institutions. Um, and so they're quite different, actually, to the rest of the population that I guess they um, are hoping to or are kind of thinking that they're serving. So one thing we might do, not just in terms of kind of transforming where money is going in terms of places, but transforming how culture is produced in terms of places to make cultural production more diverse. So in other words, who has the opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. That's and so, that so crucial. And that does go back to schools, doesn't it? And what is the cultural offer in schools? And I know there have been attempts, which this government has sort of resisted to, to have a standard, I don't mean standard, but a sort of a, a good cultural offer in schools to to young people, a certain number of hours of culture each yeah. week and so on. Is that right? Yeah. And then also, I think, broadening out what we mean by culture. Um, so it's not just a matter of kind of like, you know, sitting kids in front of, um, again, you know, a sort of a Shakespeare play or, you know, a, a dry and dusty bit of English lit or whatever, but trying to transform how we think about, you know, say cultural canons to be more open, more diverse. So what goes on at, say, GCSE level is reflective of the everyday lives of Britain's diverse population, particularly actually in the regions outside of London. But that's why these cities of culture um, seem to be such a good thing, because if you're growing up in one of those towns, you're seeing people like me do this it's not people down in london or people from 500 years ago the more you see that people like me have the opportunity to do this the more of a sort of bleed through effect that's going to have on on kids and people from different backgrounds yeah i mean there's a kind of cliche uh that's come out of big discussions in the states uh you know if you can't see it you can't be it you know around say um who is on stage who's on screen in america and then increasingly like who is backstage you know and off screen in terms of producing things i guess um i know reasons to be cheerful and one you know what you just said is definitely a reason to be cheerful but my caution i guess would be in terms of thinking about the broader barriers um of getting in and getting on a lot of these things are to do with kind of quite subtle sort of social networks going to the right universities you know so again we're back to ed's point about don't kind of put everything onto culture for dealing with the kind of big social and economic um, issues in the country. But equally, like, don't kind of shy away from the idea that culture can do some really great stuff. Just to end with a simplistic thought, you know, every place should be an exciting place to live. I mean, I think that's sort of, in a way, the basic, yeah, my basic thing. Yeah. You know, every place should have a sense of not just pride, but but also there should be exciting things to do. Yeah. That, you know, in a way, it could be as simple as that. Can't yeah, it? and but I, I think, crucially, it should be about that place. 
so you know not just the kind of like you know hey this worked here let's just copy it but actually what do we do what does our place do what are we good at and what should we celebrate because that both you know will kind of create sustainable cultural legacies because people will own it um and also it'll produce kind of you know interesting and different cultural forms I, I have got one more question, which is maybe a bit unfair. If I made you Secretary of State for Culture tomorrow and also maybe Chancellor of the Exchequer in the Milliver- and, in the and Prime Minister at the same time, just in case you didn't have enough power, <laughs> somebody who knows about these issues, what would you what would you do? Radically it- reorientate funding away from London. Um, London has amazing cultural institutions. They, you know, it's really important that they're funded, but... I think there are different business models that many of the bigger London institutions could could use. And actually, a lot of the money might be, I suppose you could argue, you know, less effectively spent outside of London in terms of, say, visitor numbers, but actually much more effectively spent in terms of transforming places. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. So, Jeff, what do you think about all of that? I mean, I think it has been... This the whole conversation has been something to be cheerful about. And I don't want to be too Pollyanna-ish just because I know there are issues around gentrification with with some uh, cultural programmes sometime. But just broad, broadly speaking, I, I remember being a kid and feeling like this stuff wasn't for me. And then because of... I, I grew up just outside Manchester. Um, because of efforts as Man, of Manchester as a city and of individuals like Tony Wilson from Factory Records they give you a sense of possibility and not just of getting out, but staying somewhere and being involved in creative things. And it just changes your way of thinking about stuff. We can talk a lot about oh, what is the impact on regeneration and, and so on. And that's got, you've got to get that right. But I, fundamentally, I think it comes down to just something very basic, which is people's right to see, do exciting stuff and, you know, it not just to be restricted to some people, but it's sort of bringing culture. And I think Grayson was brilliant, but he's so right about this, which is, you know, culture is a very loaded word. And it it does sometimes sound like something you're doing to people. And culture should be, I think the distinction between high and low culture is false, and it should be broad. But bringing a range of cultural experiences to people has got to be a good thing. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard today about culture or ideas for future shows, keep those emails coming in. You can find us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or you can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Right, we've had an email from Matthew Horn. Uh, subject, simplish solution to UK tax. Hello, Jeff and Ed, the new Jedward Gedward. Thanks for your enlightening. Uh, it's good, it'll catch on. Uh, thanks for your enlightening podcasts. I've long been an advocate of simplifying the UK tax rules, stop tax avoidance. The main concern for me is that when you have one tax at a high rate, e.g. PAYE, National Insurance on Earnings, and another low tax rate, for example, capital gains tax, just 10%, you can end up with people shifting income into capital schemes to pay at the lower rate. We discussed this last week. It's near impossible for HMRC to prevent this happening. The solution, as far as I can tell, is to have a single UK rate of tax for all taxes. I would scrap national insurance contributions, which is particularly unfair, on employees and set the same rate for income tax, capital gains tax and corporation tax. I would not increase this rate as you earn more, but have it set at a single figure for the year. Now, I don't... uh, I think he's sort of got something going for what he's saying, uh, Matthew, but I'm... This is a a sort of flat tax, You hear libertarians talk about flat tax quite a lot, don't you? You you do. Um, I mean, his defence of it, just to say, is that he says if the tax rate increases the more you earn, the more likely the income is to be deferred to a later time or converted into capital, resulting in less tax being collected. I mean, I'm not sure I by that argument and the the case for progressive taxation is that those with the broader shoulders should bear the greatest burden and not just in sort of absolute terms but as a percentage of their income now actually when you look at the figures for the uk tax system i mean this is almost unbelievable but i think i'm right in saying that the bottom 20 percent pay as much if not more as a percentage of their income than the top 20 percent wow because of the indirect taxes because of vat which you know bears more heavily on the poorest Tax because on. they pay more of a proportion of their income on goods that have VAT on them. So, so I think that that principle of the progressive tax system is is a really important one. But I think his other point about capital gains tax and so on is important. Now, off the subject of tax, we have an email from Kevin Houghton. Uh, that's H O U G H T O N. I think that's Houghton. Right. What, what do you mean, right? <laughs> Just to give you some background here, there has been an extensive discussion before we uh, switched the microphone on about whether it's Horton or Houghton. Perhaps we can just sort of split the difference and sort of agree to disagree and say both, 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 both are well, or both ways are right, <laughs> okay? okay? Yeah. Uh, we can both have prizes on this one. Right, now, Kevin... Uh, yeah, that was very. You dealt with that very well. I you really sort of uh, took it. My stride. Crossed, right. crossed party lines. Yeah, exactly. I reached across the aisle, as they say yeah. in the United States. Right. Subject. Uh, this is Kevin, who emailed, not Kevin the cat, who was earlier on. Then <laughs> Grace and Barry just. I mean, Ke- Grayson's cat is amazing, but he doesn't email in, and he's not called Kevin Houghton either. Right. Houghton. Uh, uh, Houghton. Right. So Kevin Houghton emails in and says, listening to your podcast makes me sad, dot, 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 that you didn't win the election. 
I'd much prefer someone... Now, I thought this was a compliment, and I've now worked out it isn't. I'd much prefer someone who is incompetent with a bacon sandwich than a group of people who are just plain old incompetent. That's still a compliment. I mean, there's a little dig in there, but it's still a compliment, no, no. right? He says incompetent with a bacon sandwich. Nobody's arguing that you're competent oh, with a bacon sandwich. Oh, incompetent with a bacon sandwich. Yes. No, I see. Not incompetent comma with a comma. bacon sandwich. It's the Oxford yeah. comma. Is, is yeah. it an Oxford comma? No, not, it's a different different type of comma. It's not. Oh, no, it's, yeah, no, the yeah. Oxford comma is different. Yeah. But anyway, so, so yeah, sorry, I'd read it slightly the wrong way, Kevin. <laughs> Uh, I'd much prefer someone who's incompetent with a bacon sandwich than a group who are just plain old incompetent, incompetent with a bacon sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Now that we've got that out of the way, um, his point is kind of related to the universal basic income. I'm a big fan of Star Trek, but one aspect of Star Trek really boggles my brain. And that is that in the Star Trek universe, they don't have money. At first, I thought this would never work. It's all very fine not paying the captain. After all, uh, who wouldn't want to be Captain Kirk? But what about the guy who cleans the Enterprise's toilets? Never featured that on the show, I don't think. How do you motivate him to go to work? But then after a particularly boring work YouTube conference, brackets my company trying to be modern and techy. I hope we're not going to get him fired for this. Uh, the autoplay feature served up an interesting... He can art. always say, oh, no, that wasn't me. That was Kevin Houghton. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the audio the, you've given him is defence. The autoplay feature served up an interesting article on motivation. Now, let's just say, listeners, that... Um, he Kevin then referred us to this YouTube video, and Jeff and I were a bit like, are we going to bother to watch this YouTube video? Maybe we're not going to read out his comment. If we don't watch the YouTube video, we can't read out his comment. He mentioned a phallic candle in the in the thing, and maybe that sort of titillated Jeff a little bit. And so he thought, let's <gasps> let's let's sort of watch the uh, let let's watch the YouTube video. Anyway, this YouTube video is bloody brilliant, Kevin it's, Out. It's so great. I honestly, I really recommend this YouTube video. It's a TED talk and um yeah go we almost don't want to spoil it for you um but yeah it, it we'll we'll put the link up on the facebook page and uh, i guess we'll uh, we'll tweet it as well the guy's name is dan pink and the the talk is called the puzzle of motivation and it's so good and it's uh challenges the orth- orthodoxy i mean basically we took an 18 minute break from recording this podcast because we were just we were so gripped by this um, but by this TED talk, and his basic point is: it's, 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 just get your head around this. They did this experiment, which required some creativity with some students or something, and the the one group was told you've got to do this. Uh, so the so called candle experiment, you've got to do this thing. You've got to make sure that you, you're you're in a room, and you've got to make sure that the candle is uh, you've got you're given a candle and a box of some uh, is there pi- a candle pi- pi- oh shut up <laughs> <laughs> you're given a candle with i'm trying to explain this you're given a candle with a box and some pins and you've got to somehow stop the candle light the candle with some matches and stop the candle wax going on the table it's a logic it's a logic puzzle about attaching a it's a logic puzzle about attaching a to a wall and the idea behind it is that people who were given a financial motivation did worse than the people who weren't given a financial motivation it's basically saying that if a if a task is challenging and engaging then that can be motivation enough in its own merit right not just can be i mean that actually you do better yeah Without the financial motivation, which is very, very counterintuitive. Mm. Um, and, and his whole point is that 21st century tasks require a, a, such a large degree of creativity that actually the whole business model needs to be rethought. And, and if you think about it, it has huge implications for public services, business and a whole range of things. And it's a very, very good talk. 
It is a very good toy. I'm not quite sure how it solves the problem of the toilet on the Starship Enterprise, but maybe maybe that is a task that would require ingenuity if William Shatner's been <laughs> been on that. I don't is, know. Is that like it looks a... like a man who could leave a mess. That's all I'm saying. Is that like a? Is, I thought you were making some kind of Shatner pun. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a sort of bad Shatner pun. No, no, that was you. Oh, right. But I, I right. right, over to you, and it's an easy one to pronounce, so that's yeah. quite good. This is Catherine Bird, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. Um, I have another Ed Miliband anecdote, which, again, wasn't the most agreeable meeting, but instead of just writing to you to have a moan about it, I have an interesting suggestion for a resolution related to episode six, which is the drugs episode. Um, I met Ed Miliband just after the general election in 2015 while I was working at the Science Museum in London. I was manning the Typhoon Force flight simulator in the fly zone, which is notoriously busy on the weekends. And there's often a sea of hyper children and their parents. The atmosphere is quite intense and it's often very loud. If you're over the age of 10, it's a stressful environment to be in. Anyway, to get a ride on the typhoon force you have to purchase a ticket from the ticket desk which is on the other side of the fly zone meaning you have to go and queue up there and then come back to queue up for the ride itself ed came up to me to inquire about the ride and whether it would be suitable for his children i explained the ride probably not very well because i was thinking holy shit that's ed Miliband. and then i told him that he'd have to go and buy a ticket first Ed, I can't remember exactly what your response was, but you weren't very pleased and it must not have been great because your wife actually came and apologised to you. Fake news. Fake news. (laughs) Fake news. It's fake news. It's fake news. It's crooked media. This is crooked media. I'm channeling Donald Trump. It's crooked media. Fake news. You can't believe these people. They just lie. They just lie. They're just liars. We should lock them up. Yeah, We should lock them up. I fired her. I fired her. Why would you be in a grumpy mood just after the I 2015 election? I, I fired her. I find that very difficult to believe. <laughs> she says, don't worry, I didn't let it change my high opinion of you. And whenever Fake I've, news. Whenever I've retold the story, I've given the context of a Tory Britain as a way not to besmirch your name. Fake news. With that said, there is a way that you can make this up to me. Yeah, he wants you jailed. That's the way he wants to make it up to you. What? Exactly, lock her up. <laughs> <laughs> With regards to episode six, she... Um, she tells us about a study. Uh, she's doing a master's at UCL. And basically, they are looking for people to take part in a study about the effects of cannabis. Now, she says this isn't UCL saying, hey, man, let's get high, but rather, hey, man, let's do some research about how getting high affects your brain. So they're looking for people aged 16 to 19 and people aged 25 to 27 who do and do not currently use cannabis Um They're going to be reimbursed £240 in total for their time. And um, your participation would be completely confidential. You're free to pull out at any time. There's an email address here, pals.canteenstudy. Now, canteen has a double N uh, in this email address, pals.canteenstudy at ucl.ac.uk. Or if it's easier for you, there's a phone number 0203 108 3319. And I, I think you're just slightly outside the age bracket, so you won't be able to sort of take part and get mellow with Catherine and try and repair some of the damage done. What were you glaring at me for telling people you're over the age of 27? Well, the trouble was I was going to make that joke about you and you got in there first. So I felt slight, I, I felt slightly irritated by, by, by the whole fake, fake news anyway. I mean, it's probably not even cannabis. It's probably not even a drug study. She's, she's lying. Lock her up. 
email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast and joining us to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful helen monks hello hello, hello. I'm, I'm so excited to be here oh, I, I, we're excited to have, to have you here but you you basically said that my loft is a disappointment to you oh i'm so sorry i just had such an image of where you guys were, were sitting and can you and describe what you saw in your mind's eye so in my mind's eye it was quite a big wide white lofty and you were both sat in armchairs right. quite far away from each other but in reality it's a tiny little no offense um <laughs> uh sort of very low ceilinged and you're both sat very intimately we, we like the intimacy. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. No, no. If anything, it's brought me back down to earth. I'm quite happy. I feel I was worried I was going to feel overwhelmed because I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, Actually, thank you. I feel quite at home. This is a bit like where That's I live. Good. You've brought some ideas with you, Helen. What's, uh, what's the first thing you've got? I have, yeah. So my first idea is compulsory conversation on your commute. Um, I'm quite known in my family for whenever I get on a train or a bus people talking to me and it's always a bit annoying i love this idea yeah so I, 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 i'm getting very tense oh, at the very I thought love of it this idea. yeah i'm so pleased because it's really annoying when it happens but then afterwards you actually realize you've learned loads about other people totally that you would never normally meet in real life i um, totally agree with I've you met people like coming off the train who have just come out of prison and are going back home or particularly during brexit i met a lot of people who were voting to leave and understood a lot more like where they were coming from and wasn't that surprised therefore by like the result because and how do you start the conversation well see i don't they always come up to me but in this world where it's a policy it is you have to it's the law and i almost think we should do like seating yes plans. this is my favorite this idea is so yeah. far. this is a nightmare yes. to me this, this is <laughs> definitely what we need honestly oh. it will make the world a much better place oh, trust me this yeah, sounds like one so of those please. wedding receptions where they force you to sit next to people you don't know to get no it's exactly like that and it's probably but horrendous. why did they come up but you, you... so me i don't know you've got I one of those faces you i've look got friendly. one of those faces but also i was with my mum the other day because i said it's so annoying people always come up to me and then she she pointed out after someone had come over and spoken to us that it's because I invite it really I go oh I like your bike and then they talk to me <laughs> exactly. at great length about their bike so it probably is me actually but I, th- I think you're but you know it's really interesting isn't it this is you're obviously an extrovert yes. what do you think oh god no am no, I an extrovert is somebody who, who is energized by the company of other people and an introvert is somebody who's drained by but, I mean it's isn't it the, because my wife and I have exactly this conversation I love talking to people I had this riotous thing on coach C on the train uh, coming back from my constituency I talked to all these people and it was probably the whole carriage revolved in this conversation <laughs> That's and amazing. It, it was just great um my mother was used to say to me are you going to be a boy to go tiger shooting with and what she meant by that, not that she shot tigers. Donald yeah, Trump's sons. No, no, but what she meant was, are you going to be like adventurous? And I think good things, and this is what we talk to our kids about a lot, and I've sort of she, persuaded so my wife this. She'd want you to be the, the tiger shooting type. Yeah, because it's like good things happen to people who are adventurous, because you meet interesting people, you form friendships with people, whereas if you're sort of stick in the mud and sort of hang back, you just miss out on lots of life's experiences. Maybe this is my problem. This yeah, has made me miserable all these decades. You've been stuck in your attic too long <laughs> yes. using your toilet. Yeah. <laughs> Having a great time. Though. How do we enforce it, though? <clears throat> oh, you just you ha- you have to. Cultural. Mm, I don't know. I'm almost a bit like state heavy-handed. You should get people on seating plans, sitting next to people they wouldn't normally speak to. <laughs> Conversation inspectors. Yeah. You could, who could just, like walk up and down the carriage and <laughs> yeah. say... Uh, excuse me, you don't seem to have started a conversation. Do you know each other? If you don't know each other, you've got to start a conversation. Yeah, I love how enthusiastic you are about I'm this. Totally well, this, this will be me never leaving the house. I think you would ch- or walking I, everywhere. I, I, what, but why? 
because I feel so drained. I, like, I get terribly anxious about not having anything to say. And Just I, ask questions, I think. That's, but well, that's, that's what I do anyway. That's what I do to avoid job. talking about myself. But you're incredibly engaging as a person. Oh, thank you. No, but you are, seriously. The eye contact you, is happening again. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what it's like. So you say Justine is the same way. Yes, she so some mean. people just you know it's almost like two mental genders, isn't it? And and some of us. I had these people sitting opposite kind of me on thing. the tube the other day. And I was she was with me, and she hates it when I get into these conversations. And but partly because it's sort of like the people seem to want to talk to me, and then she feels a bit sort of like what she's supposed Spare to do. Yeah. Um, so I feel like maximum eight percent of the conversations I have are great conversations. Eight percent. Eight percent. Who are you talking to? I'm trying to avoid talking to people, and even. <laughs> Even in that scenario, you learn so much from people. I'm sorry to sound like an evangelist here, but I'm learning boring things from people. But I maybe, think this, maybe my small talk is bad. Maybe that's it. Maybe it should be, there should be a ban on small talk. Oh, mind you, that'd be exhausting, then, wouldn't it? If we yeah. were just talking about... So, believe in God, then. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Yeah. But I think in a world where people are di- sorry, I could go on about this for in hours. A disconnected but world. In a world where people live in silos and don't really connect to each other and you know tend to connect with their own tribes i think those kind of conversations mm. are really important yeah yeah and actually the conversations that you have sometimes they don't change your mind in the moment or whatever but they can stick with you much longer than you realize about yeah I, when i came back from australia i um when i was had lost the election went to australia you lost the holiday. election i heard you went to ibiza i I did go to Ibiza, and in fact, you can't remember anything. Oh, it's such a digression, this. But but basically, the Times did this mock up of me dancing yeah. topless in Ibiza. Yeah, we all saw and, it. And and this this the the mother of a friend of, of somebody who worked for me actually said to him, "Oh, it's so good. I saw those pictures. Of him. It's so good. He's having a nice time." And like, <laughs> But anyway, the thing I was going to say about Australia was I was walking, it was two days after I got back, I was kept out of the leadership contest, Jeremy Corbyn and so on, met met a guy on the street, didn't know him, he's since become a friend of mine, he stopped me and said, oh, it's Ed Miliband, how funny, I've got my Labour Party ballot paper in my hand. And I'm going back to go and vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And I started saying to him, well, why are you voting for Jeremy Corbyn? He said, oh, I couldn't forgive myself if I didn't. He, he explained to me he'd been to a rally. And you know, I kind of learned what people were thinking and feeling in that moment. And he's since become my friend. And it would never have happened, well, if he hadn't recognised me. But if I hadn't sort of stopped to talk to him, I could have just said, oh, you know, I'm busy with my kids. You know, you know, I don't want to talk to you or something. This is amazing. You just, you, you're now friends with somebody who just came up to you in the street. That happens all the yeah, time. Yeah, I actually, one of my best friends now is a woman I met in the toilet. Um, she'd seen me in a telly show and she'd really enjoyed it. So she waited outside to tell me she'd really liked it. And then she turned out to be one of the most amazing people ever. And then she came to visit the set of the thing that she liked. And now we're really good friends. Wow. But, you know, for the times that that does happen, about 10 times when you meet someone who is a bit insufferable. I don't, I think, see, I think, I think it also gives you, I think, no, I, I, I think Helen's right. Look, I think it gives you a positive view about human nature mm-hmm. because you realise that most people are actually very, very nice. That's so, true. So oh. I was going for a walk in the countryside with my wife once and I got, we got really lost and we ended up at this sort of uh, place and we were walking by a canal and we ended up, and we've become friends with these, very good friends with these people. And it turned out they ran an art gallery kind of in the middle of like a small village. And we sort of, you know, knocked on the door because we were lost and it was raining. And then they invited us in and da 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 da. That's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff's looking sort of stunned. I know, like I've, just, I've got faith theory in Theory of gravity. Or... I've got faith in humanity. I believe that humanity is ultimately good. I could just do without interacting with individual humans. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I think it is an introvert extrovert thing, yeah. isn't it? But also, it's not true because I think that's you know how your friendship with Ed started was reaching out exactly, and, and also you run a podcast where your whole thing is like talking to people mm, in a very controlled environment <laughs> where they then loft. leave. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Helen, what's uh, what's your next idea? Well, I need to move on. <laughs> Stop talking. Um, also, you say eight percent of conversations are, are good maximum. So what about this? What what's happening right now with this conversation? Are we in your eight percent? Yeah, we're in the eight percent. We're in the ninety-two. It's, it's very, <laughs> we are the ninety-two. We are the ninety-two. Helen. We can set up a tent in the garden. It's a carefully curated conversation. <laughs> we're going to have the t-shirts made. We are the ninety-two. <laughs> what's uh, um, what's what's your next idea? So Helen? my next kind of leads on. I didn't really realise when I was writing it, but um, the idea of empathy politics. So you're allowed to say whatever you want, and you're allowed to come up with whatever policies you want, but you always have to have first-hand experience of the thing that you're doing. So like you're allowed to cut benefits, but you then have to live on benefits and equally you're allowed to honestly you should be in politics honestly (laughs) mate you should be in politics that is like you're totally right about this carry on well just like things like katie hopkins is allowed to do a hate blog about refugees but she then has to be a refugee i think that yeah that was that was it really that's my whole thing because obama did this speech once which really i really remember this saying that our real problem in politics is an empathy deficit and and it is i think it is so true and and you know the funny thing was i once um i once uh got really into thinking about this and thinking about you know isn't empathy the key to leadership and there's also this study that the that some academics did showing that the more power you have the less empathetic you become like it's a brain thing wow. Um, what because like, you relate to people less? You relate, or right. you relate to people less. I, I can't, I can't remember exactly. We'll, we'll find the the study and we'll post it on our um, Facebook page. But the, um, but so I think you're completely right, and I think there's something about politics that makes people less empathetic because it does. You know, you have lots of people around you, power, the trappings of power and so on. But you see it all the time, like yeah. homophobic people who don't like gay people apart from Brian next door who's a laugh. Like, And it's so true that you that, I, that as soon as you kind of meet people on a human level, it's really difficult to enforce policy or to hate them or whatever. It's really interesting this because um, when phone hacking happened, Harriet Harman was our uh, culture, media and sport uh, spokesperson. And I remember her saying to me, it was around the Leveson inquiry and so on, she said, look, it's incredibly important that we walk in the victim's shoes. And I always remember that her using that phrase. And actually then Cameron used that phrase. He said, if it isn't right by the victims, it won't be all right for me. And of course, he then reneged on it. But, but uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's such an important thing because, because how do you govern a country or decide on things if you can't put yourself in the position of the people it's affecting? And you can't live that life. But that was. That but was, you can. You can give it to someone but you, else. But you. But you, but you can. You can. You can sort of imagine what that life would be like, or go and find out about it. But that was yeah. the whole thing, especially with those guys, sort of Cameron and Osborne. They seemed very removed. Hug a hoodie. Yeah, 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 yeah. How long did that last, though? <laughs> but honestly, I remember that hug a hoodie thing, and I remember when, while I was leader. And it was when the riots happened, and I never found a way of doing this. But I want, and Cameron was not a good in his response to the riots. But I, I remember wanting to go to him and say, "Listen, you know, just privately, your hug a hoodie speech was a good speech. It was it was an important thing that he was saying." And then he sort of went off it, and you know, there, there were. I know this is kind of controversial for some people. There were good parts to Cameron's agenda when he was leader of the opposition you know, about understanding more, all of that stuff that he said. But then it just felt like they were pretending to be like that until they got elected and then they went back to their old ways. Putting empathy back into public life, really important. Mm. And did you have another one, Helen? 
Yeah, my final one is that I think that tea should be free everywhere in all pubs, cafes, restaurants, gyms, theatres. On the tube. On the tube. When as you part have of the conversation. That's a great one. Ed, a man as physically inept as you are shouldn't be advocating <laughs> free hot beverages on moving public transport. Listen, you're in no position to talk, know, anybody. <laughs> what, what's your rationale? I just think tea makes the world better. Mm-hmm. Um, also, particularly in England, like so many people drink it and we spend so much money on it. But also it's kind of symbolic of um, costing up. Like it's always the thing that places make the most money on because it's the cheapest to make so i just think ideologically never mind free 4g on the tube you should have free tea on free the tube tea. Yeah. i spend so much money in prep it's why i can't afford a house <laughs> well that's what they say about millennials exactly. isn't it? So. I, I read that and i was like do you know what there is an element of truth i do buy a lot of cups of tea in prep i don't think it's enough for a house <laughs> yeah so. i don't know if it would stretch to a deposit yeah, so free right. tea so, so where so where else apart from the tube did you say so theaters um gyms uh cafes restaurants any kind of eatery libraries I just think there should just be tea on tap all the time. But there is a kind of pattern here, which is how do you encourage the sort of sense of community and reaching out mm. for people? Yeah, that's true. Because tea empathy, would encourage, yeah. conversations. I'm definitely into free tea. I'm struggling a little bit with the with the compulsory with the empathy. Talk, but, yeah. uh, Helen, um, what can people see you in at the moment? Anything? In Anything bed. In bed. Yeah, yeah. In bed. Um, I've got a couple of things. I'm not sure what's official, but a couple of things in the can that are going to be on telly next year. So maybe just follow me on the old Twitter. And you are at Helen. And underscore monks. Yeah, and um, I run a theatre company called Lung Theatre, and we've got a few plays coming up as well. So. Fantastic! It's been great there. to have you. Thank yeah, you. I've really enjoyed it. You could you could go and see one of Helen's productions with oh, Presentit. Yeah. Yes. There was a guy who said I was rude to him at the theatre. Yeah, we've, we've been looking for an opportunity for Ed to be able to make amends. <laughs> Maybe I'll go with you instead, okay. Jeff. Oh, come along, please. Uh, Helen, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So thanks to Grayson Perry, who I thought was excellent, uh, Sharon Darley from the Goodwin Trust, uh, in Hull, Dave O'Brien from the University of Edinburgh. All of them were, were great. And also uh, Helen Monks, who I absolutely loved. I thought she was brilliant. You're doing a great job with these thank yous. What about thanking the, thanking the team too? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to thank Emma Corsham, who produced the show. Wonderful job And does, does so brilliantly. And she, she, she's so diligent and, and brilliant and excellent. She does such a great job of editing. You would, I mean, you might think, this is edited. Yeah. This is the good stuff that they leave in. But Honestly, I mean, she has to... to deal with all kinds of comment, ridiculous comments yeah. coming from me and you yeah. and everybody else. The dreck that she has to take dreck, out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to thank Alex Weiss-Bryce for his excellent research and backup and Lindsay Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you've got some other thank yous. Well, I was wondering if you'd like to thank our announcer. Yeah, I'd like to thank our announcer, Gail Lofthouse. And uh, what about uh, uh, what about uh, the, the fellow who put the idents together? Ed Seed. That's James Deacon. That's James Deacon. And then the composer of our music. Ed Seed. And who designed our artwork? You don't know, do you? Emily Power. Emily Power, of course. How I was could just, you forget? I didn't want you to feel excluded by not doing your name. <laughs> That's why I left the, the dead air. The talk pause. about cock and bull Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so yeah I mean we recommend that you now go off and uh, talk to some strangers on public transport according to Helen's suggestion well I do that anyway actually oh, I'm going to go and see your balcony people actually oh of course yeah they're waiting for I've you got my appointment on the balcony <laughs> I might never return um, so so we're done don't forget if you want to email us it's reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com we'd love to hear from you Christmas is coming up follow us on <laughs> how's your Christmas shopping going it's, it's not I just want it to end 
Well, this, what did I tell you about the first Oh, I had an business? amazing Christmas story, right? Okay. Oh, this is amazing. And and so, do you know the NORAD San- Santa Tracker? I'm, I'm familiar with it. Right. So, so NORAD, which I think is something to do with NASA or the U.S. Defense Department, I think it's more the U.S. Defense Department, has this Santa Tracker where kids on between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, uh, as Christmas Day arrives in different places, Australia and so on, Australia's obviously first, you can watch the presents being delivered uh, on Christmas Eve and, and so on, and you can track Santa all around the globe. And I was just reading an article the other day about how this had happened, and there's this mythology that what it was was that a, 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 a number in like 1955 got printed in the newspaper for some Santa something or other, and th- this little kid rang up the US Defence Department instead, and they suddenly had a bright idea. And I don't think that's sort of 100% true, but I think it's a sort of germ of truth. And it was a sort of PR exercise by the US Defence Department, to, which began as we're keeping Santa safe during the Cold War. Wow. So we're, we're sort of protecting Santa. From the commies. For, protecting Santa from the commies. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's quite effective, isn't it? That's incredible. I mean, I'm sure that Eugene is going to get into the Santa tracker at some point. I think so. And who, and what a, what a history I'll be able to tell him about there. I mean, I think it does sort of brings home the fact that he's delivering sort of, you know, 20 billion presents, yeah. you know, which is sort of feels slightly... But let's not get, let's use your expression here that you use a lot of the time when the microphones aren't on. Let's not get stuck. In the weeds. In the weeds. Zed's big expression yeah. at the moment. No, that's not... That's big buzz not, phrase. Let's not get stuck. It was actually last year's, but... Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> right, and I know you've got your appointment with the balcony, guys, so um, I've been Jeff... No. I know you've got your appointment with the balcony, guys, so I'm going to let you go. No, I don't think you get to, like, edit that out and, like, redo it. I think... <laughs> I think I, that's, that's staying in, matey Popeye. I mean, you know... <laughs> matey Popeye! There's <laughs> another edism... Where'd you get these things from? All right. All right. He's been Matey Popeye. Uh, He's been the guy with the two-toed shoes. (laughs) And these have been reasons to be cheerful. And thanks to Kevin Horton for the email. Bye. (laughs) 